All right, this morning, let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I'm still, look, actually it's going to be ending in chapter 9, the pulling back the curtain of the old and the new. And this morning, looking at the eternal legacy that actually Jesus Christ has obtained for us. Everybody wants to have some kind of legacy that they leave when they leave the earth. Uh, Hopefully, sometimes a legacy is a good name. Sometimes it's a fortune. Uh, Sometimes it's possessions. Sometimes it it just could be as simple as uh, passing on a work to someone else, uh, a company to someone else. But they leave something to someone, and then that someone hopefully does the same thing that their parents had done, and they pass it on to their children, and it goes on and on. So you pass the baton of a legacy from one generation to the next generation. The Lord has given us a legacy, no doubt about it, but it's an interesting kind of legacy. We don't pass it on. We keep it. I just want to remind you, as I get into Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 through 22, that the the new covenant offers a superlative plan for the salvation of sinful humanity. Nothing comes close to it. Nothing equals it. It is the only way to be saved. I've been saying that over and over again. But remember that the basic idea of a covenant, and another word for covenant, is a testament. And even in our context here, it can be used as a will. A will that someone gives to someone once they die. And so it is used in those ways in Hebrews that the old covenant, and of course the basic uh, idea of a covenant is a relationship between God and man. That's the idea of the covenant. God makes a covenant to have a relationship with himself and humanity. The Old Covenant, or considered also the First Covenant, was dependent on man's keeping the law. As soon as that person broke the law, then the covenant became ineffective and access to God was lost. It was denied. The New Covenant, or the Second Covenant, the Last Covenant, The basic meaning is that because Jesus inaugurated a new covenant with his blood, people who are called by the gospel and receive Jesus as their substitute sacrifice have access to God and fellowship with him forever. This means that Jesus has left us an an eternal legacy. A legacy that never ends. A legacy that is never passed on to anyone else. It's a legacy that we enjoy with God forever and ever. So in this portion of Scripture, he's really dealing with that topic. It's a difficult passage of Scripture. But I think that you'll see that it falls out as you listen, as you engage your mind, 
that it, it falls out at the end of a really a point of rejoicing. That, wow, God has done this for me. God has put me in his will, and I have become the benefactor or the beneficiary of the benefactor, and I get these things. I get this, what God has given me. The Bible doesn't explain exactly all the, what it is. Actually, the whole book of Hebrews can, can be contained in that. But it's really the plan of salvation and that he includes you in it. So the first thing I want to want you to notice this morning in our passage of Scripture is the graciousness of the benefactor. That God has been incredibly gracious to his children. And how has he been gracious? Well, look at verse 15 in your Bibles. Chapter 9 of Hebrews, and it says this. I'm going to break down this passage and spend some time in this passage uh, right here. And it's first is the gracious purpose of the mediator's work. Look what it says in verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Let me just stop there. A mediator, remember, is someone who mediates between two parties to remove a disagreement to remove a problem or it could be also to reach a common goal so we see from scripture that jesus comes to us as god's mediator now of course there are other places in scripture where this passage is used i think of first timothy chapter 2 verse 5 where it says for there is one god remember that passage and one mediator also between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So it is between God the Father, humanity, and right in the middle is Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. Now the mediator has work to do to make sure that his mediation between God and man is done completely or perfectly. So what? So we can have a relationship with God that could never be broken. That's what he's going to do. And that's what it's saying here in Scripture. And what does a mediator do also? To bring a, a righteous God to, uh, and a disobedient children together. Also to break down the huge barrier that sin has erected between us and God. Remember, it's, it's your sin that separates you from God. So it's the sin that's primarily the target of the mediator. How do I remove this barrier so a person could have a relationship with God? So a person can be forgiven. So a person can actually have access to the God who's created the heaven and the earth and the person of Jesus Christ who is that creator. And so he comes also to break down this huge barrier of sins that have been erected between God and man, and the very things that caused that separation are, in our passage of Scripture, called transgressions. Look at verse 15. So that since a death has taken place for redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Now, let me just say something about this word transgression. We don't often use this word for sin, but there's a purpose why the Holy Spirit used this word and brought it to us this morning because this word has a character to it that other words for sin doesn't. 
Because this word, actually, transgression, is a word that is used in Scripture to mean that the that sins may take on the character of transgressions. In other words, that I come to a place, you come to a place where I realize, listen, the thing that has separated me between God, the reason why I can't get to Him is my own sin. So see, transgressions actually bring to your mind the consciousness of sin. The consciousness that, listen, I've offended a a holy God, and so therefore I am now conscious of that. And as I hear the word of God, as, as the law comes to me, the, trans, or the consciousness is intensified. Where I start feeling convicted. Wait a minute, I've sinned against God. That's the very thing that separates me from God. That's the very thing that keeps me from his presence, that keeps me out of heaven, that keeps me in this place of slavery and bondage. So this word includes that in it, and it also includes this. It would bring a person, once they feel convicted of their sin, to a desire, a desire in their heart that redemption would be aroused. All right, remember, what's redemption? God buying you out of the, purchasing you from the slave market of sin. That there would be a desire in your heart where you would say, Lord... I've sinned against you. I can't do anything to remove the sin, but you can. And you say in your word, you redeem those who believe in you and you buy them from the slave market of sin. And so this word intensifies the desire for redemption. I want to be saved, in other words. I want to be made right with God. And that takes over the mind. People get convicted. And then a mediator also opens the way to God's holy presence. And a mediator also frees a person from the slave market of sin. How? By releasing them, by paying a price, by paying for them. I dealt with that last week. And we know the price of our souls is the very blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That's what he was doing there. He was purchasing you from the slave market of sin, and he was paying the Father for you by his own sacrificial death. That's all through Hebrews. But that's the only way you can be made right with God. That's the only way you you and I can be saved. So there's something problematic though in this passage of scripture that I I didn't identify yet and I want you to notice what it is in verse 15 look at the the last part of verse 15 I'll, I'll read it from the middle so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant now this is very interesting how does Moses get saved how does Abraham get saved how does any of the Old Testament saints get saved if the law cannot save and the sacrificial system could not do redeem a soul for eternity, then how does one, before the cross, become saved? Well, that's the interesting thing that's going on in this passage of Scripture. You know, you know what's going on? 
So, so the question would be, how is it possible for those who were stained and committed sins under the old covenant that, that was powerless to, to cover sins permanently and be made clean and forgiven under the new? How does it happen? You know what, how it happens? This is how it happens. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is retroactive. Now, the meaning of the term retroactive is simply relating or applying to things that have happened in the past as well as the present. We kind of liked this word, uh, especially used in the context of receiving a raise offered to you in June and find out it was retroactive pay to the beginning of the year. See, it's, that's what it is, is that I get a raise in June and I find out, wait a minute, the pay goes back to January. So I'm getting all those months. It's retroactive. Jesus is saying here, listen, how does the Old Testament saints get saved? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So everybody in the Old Testament was looking to the cross. Everybody. Wherever you look in Scripture, you either have to look forward to the cross or you have to look, again, backward to the cross. But wherever you go, you have to look to the cross for salvation. There is no other way to get around it. So the term retroactive used here, when we say that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is retroactive, it means that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is effective to wipe out the sins of people committed under the old covenant and give permanent access to God. So in other words, if there was no cross, Moses couldn't be saved. If, was, if there was no cross, Abraham couldn't be saved. If there was no cross, no one could be saved. So see, the cross becomes central to how someone becomes a believer. Someone has permanent access to God. In other words, until Christ, all people in the past, and yes, even in the present and future, were and are slaves to sin, but through Christ's work, we are released from sin's mastery and set free to serve God as righteous slaves and free to worship God. So we are saved to serve and now worship God without guilt, without the sense of condemnation from the law, because that's been removed by Christ Himself. And so it frees us up to actually worship God. Why? Because I'm redeemed. I'm bought by God. I couldn't have done it. God did it. It's all of God's grace that has done it. See, it is the generous purpose of the mediator's work to save you completely. But secondly, I want you to notice in verse number 15 something else. And of course, this, this is something that's really experiential for you and I, that not only is God gracious in the purpose of the mediator's work, but he's gracious in his call. He's gracious in his call. In other, what am I saying? I'm saying that God has to call you to salvation. Doesn't he? Look what it says in the passage. It says this. It says, 
In verse 15, for this reason, he is the meteor of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of, of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called, I want you to see that in the passage. See that? It's so important for you to get this. Because not everybody receives such grace Only those who respond to heaven's call receive the grace. Those who have been called may receive what God has to offer them. And really, this meaning call means to be called out. It also means to be invited by God. And it even goes to the point where it means to be summoned by God. It's not just an invitation like you and I receive for, for a wedding, and we either say yes or no. It's more like it's a gracious invitation from the municipality saying that you must appear. In other words, there, there's obedience involved in accepting the invitation. In fact, a call to the gospel is a call to obedience. Will you accept and believe God's gospel in, of Jesus Christ, or will you not? Either you go on your way, your merry way, and not believe it, or you come under the call of God and you sense this summoning from God that you have to respond to it. So those who respond to the heavenly call, in fact, look over to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 1. This is not the first time he mentions this. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Again, it's the one who is called, what do they do? They're called to consider. They're called to think about something. And what are they called to think about? They're called to think about this gospel that God has offered to us, this good news in Jesus Christ. So those who respond to the heavenly call know only too well that God does not call them as a reward for or in response to their special merit or good works, their religious devotion to going to church all the time and doing religious things, or their moral achievement. That is not how people get saved. That is not the gospel. Not at all. It's all of God's grace, right? It's all of God's grace. It's a free gift offered to sinners who don't deserve it. That's what the gospel is. Now, I wanted to take a, a, just take a sidestep for a moment from our passage and consider how does God call his children? How does he call his children? Well, Romans 8.30 gives us this chain, this golden chain of God's full and complete work towards believers, where it says this, that these whom he called, Romans 8.30, he also justified. So, see, God calls us to salvation. And all he foreknew... He predestined, it says in Romans 8.30, and all he predestined, he called, 
And all he called, he justified. And all he justified, he glorified. So for us, the operative word is called. Now why? Because the text says, these whom he called, he also justified. So all that are called are justified, at least this calling right here. So how are we to understand the word call? Well, there are two distinct calls, I believe, that go out. There is the outward call of the gospel. Like in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, where it says, and many are called, remember that passage? But few are chosen. All right, so that is the outward call. While heard by the ears, it can be rejected many times. People come in, they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they walk out, they hear it, but they don't respond to it. They don't, they don't feel the summons or the invitation that it's for them. They hear it, but that's all they do. They hear it. So by our experience, we all know that not everybody who receives the call of the gospel were justified or are justified because not all believe the gospel when they hear it. I don't know about you, uh, but as far as I'm concerned, that it was like three or four times I heard the gospel before I actually responded in the second way. Right? I heard it. I began to think about it. But, you know, you ask the question, why don't people come to the gospel when they hear it? Well, when I was back in Acts, there's several reasons why I don't want you to turn there. But in Acts chapter 7, he gave at least uh, two reasons why, or three reasons why. Number one, people are stiff-necked. In other words, they're stubborn. Because they think they have the answers. I already got my religion. I already got my philosophy of life. I don't need any anymore. I, I think I got it down, you know? Another reason why is because they're uncircumcised of heart. All right, remember that was a, a, a label that was given specifically to Jews, to people who are religious, to people who are legalists. And that was very offensive, actually, because it was a sign that they thought they were obeying the law but never realized that the law was really convicting them of their sin and they weren't responding to it. So they were disobedient to part of the law which demanded a response, responsive heart to God's fuller revelation. The law leaves you at the cross. That's the fuller revelation of God. A third reason why people don't respond is because they're hard of hearing. Acts 7.51 The ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit you are doing just as your fathers did. That word resisting. The old word meaning to fall against or to rush against. In other words, you put up a wall and you say, stop. I don't want to hear it. It's a resistance against God himself. So what great sin is committed when people resist the Holy Spirit by refusing to believe the summons that God gives them to come to Christ for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the cleansing of your soul, for the legacy that God gives you, eternal redemption. Come to that. What a grand and great call. Yet people say, I don't need it. I got my own stuff going on. I don't need that. You hear it all the time. It's like 
Jeremiah. See, another thing, it's not just slow comprehension that people don't hear and respond to the gospel. It's inability. They're not able to comprehend. That the prophet Jeremiah was right when he diagnosed the people spiritual condition when he wrote in in jeremiah chapter 6 10 to whom shall i speak and give warning he said that they may hear behold their ears are closed and they cannot listen behold the word of the lord has become a reproach to them they have no delight in it when god's word comes to them they don't want to hear it it irks them It goes against what the world is telling them they ought to do. It goes against what the flesh is telling them they ought to do, their desires and passions. It's it's something old-fashioned and something that people feel like they don't need it. Yet, that's the outward call. The general call to salvation is made to everybody who hears. In fact, the Holy Spirit extends that call to people all the time. But there's a second call in Scripture, and it's the inward call. It usually takes place when the outward call of the gospel is happening. How will they hear without a preacher, right? How will they understand unless the word is taught and preached? It's when the Holy Spirit calls His people effectually by working a miracle in their hearts and bringing them from spiritual death to life. That's what the term born again means. You were dead and you had to be born again. You were dead and you had to be made alive or regenerated. That's what it means. So the Holy Spirit transforms the heart, the mind, and the will And when I, and I believe we can understand a passage like John six sixty three, where it says, "It is the Spirit who gives life; the flesh profits nothing." The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So, the outward general call to salvation is made to everyone who hears the gospel of God's grace. The Holy Spirit then extends to the elect a special inward call, and, in that, in, and it brings that person to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinctions, can be and often is rejected. But the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. Now, I don't know who the elect are. You don't either. God does. In fact, how do you know when people are elect? They respond to the gospel. They respond to the summons. They accept the invitation that God's offering them. That's how you know. And then they continue in it. It's not just a passing religious religious fad. It's not some little, I'll try Jesus. It's not that at all. No, it is. It's a deep conviction that they've offended God in their sin. And they realize, I am in trouble. I need 
salvation, redemption. I need somebody to buy me out of this. I need somebody to help me beyond me. And they realize that that's Christ. That's Jesus who will do that for you. And so God extends to them an inward call. An inward call cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. Always. Because it's God's work. By means of this this special effectual call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. And remember this, that He is not limited in His work of applying salvation by man's will. One thing that is so great about God's Spirit, He overcomes your will, your stubbornness, your ability to resist. All right? In fact, He does more than that. He resurrects you from life because a dead person can't respond anyway. So the Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly with a desire to come. I want to be saved. That's really what that inward call is. Like First John, excuse me, Gospel of John tells us, but as many as received him, remember? To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. So for anyone to be saved, for anyone to have their sins forgiven, for anyone to be made right with God, it is God's will that that happens. And the Spirit of God convicts that person, calls them inwardly, and they are summoned and obey the summons. Delightfully and gladly. That's what it really means to be saved. So, in other words, salvation is all of God, not of us. The flesh profits nothing when it comes to salvation. Amen? Now, back to our text. That was a little side road just to explain something. Because the graciousness of the mediator's work and then, of course, the graciousness of God's call to salvation brings us to the graciousness of God's promise to those who are called. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, the last part of it, those who have been called may receive the promise of in eternal inheritance. Brethren, I don't even know how to preach that. The promise of eternal inheritance? Well, let me just say this. Take your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to notice something in this passage of Scripture. Because right now, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit of God in them. And that's for a very important reason. It is to sanctify you, to make you more like Christ. But it's for another reason, too. And it's a reason that's connected to your inheritance. Right? You're in God's will as a believer. You get inheritance, and that's an eternal inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse number 13 and 14... Really, the believer is, uh, in this life, life has been given a pledge or a down payment for their inheritance. In other words, God's saying to you, before I read it, he's saying to you, hey, listen, um, uh, here's a down payment for what will come over here. 
I'm giving you a down payment. It's like uh, when a guy gives a woman an engagement ring. He is saying, listen, I want to get engaged to you, so what's coming over here is our wedding day. I'm promising you that I'm going to be faithful to you, and I'm going to make it public before people, and on that day, I'm going to fulfill my down payment. So I'm going to add another ring to the other ring, and, you know, good thing there's only two rings, all right? And, uh, but it seals the what? The promise of the down payment. I'm going to pay the rest. Well, if we do that, and we do it, of course, in weakness, what about God when he makes that kind of promise? Look what it says in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So God is saying here, listen, I'm going to give my people a down payment for what will come in their full inheritance, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. And of course, a connection with the Holy Spirit of God is the word of God too, because the Holy Spirit wrote the word, and he doesn't leave us out there just to flounder and in wondering what God wants us to do. He gives us the word of God to say, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to be. This is, this is where I want you to go. This is how to get there. This is how to communicate it to other people. So see, as believers remain true to their call, in other words, as they persevere in their faith, unto the end, at death, you receive the internal inheritance in heaven so at death which is not the end for a believer it's just a doorway into god's presence drop off these old bodies right go into the presence of god wait for the resurrection of your new body but while you're there you realize wow i get an eternal inheritance that can never be taken away and see that is the difference between this inheritance and inheritances that we are used to hearing about as human beings because normal inheritances pass from one family to the next family to the next family to the next family, all right? So somebody has to die, and then it's passed on, right? And then it passed on. So in a, in a sense, I may die, pass on my inheritance, hopefully, to the family, whatever I have, right? And whatever little I have, and whatever very little I have. And then they pass it on. Hopefully they do better in some areas and pass it on to their kids and so on and so forth. But see, in this case, and in eternal inheritance, you don't pass on. You get to keep it forever. That's God's grace. But an inheritance of this magnitude cannot be received or cannot be given out or distributed unless someone dies. Unless someone dies. And that's what our next passage says. Let's, let's look Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. In other words, before I read it, a tester, you know what a tester? I'm, I'm using some legal language here. A testator, if I'm saying it right, is a will maker. The testator is the person who makes the will. So if you go and say, listen, I have to make a will, so if I die, my kids get my stuff, or if I die and my kids are still young and my kids go to this person, that person, you lay it out, simple, simple will. 
you become the testator of that will. All right? But for that will to go into effect, you actually have to die. So that's not a good thing. But that's the truth of the matter of what, it, of what a will is, right? So a testator is a will maker, someone who makes a valid will, all right? They make a valid will. It's a legal will. It's a binding will, all right? So the medium for the enforcement of the new covenant or, remember, the will that Christ has made on our behalf is the death of Christ. That's the mediation on how we get the inheritance. Look at verse number 16 of Hebrews 9. For where a covenant is, and remember, think of this, a covenant, a will, a testament. Their last will and testament, right? Well, will and testament are really the same thing. They just kind of like, I don't know, maybe they, the words get mixed up, but covenant, testament, will are the same in, in some respects, especially here in this passage of Scripture. For where the covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. 17, for a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it is, is alive, all right, or lives. It can't be in force. So here is given a very, here is given really the very nature of a will or testament. A death must occur for the inheritance to be received. But it's not your death. Really. It is Christ's death. See, in our text, there is an important fact that cannot be missed concerning the death of Christ. That is, it is the very death of Christ that enables us to receive our eternal inheritance. Christ's death makes the inheritance accessible to all who are heirs, irrespective of when you lived on this earth. If you were on the Old Covenant, it's about the cross, you're heirs and have eternal inheritance because of the cross. If you're on the other side of the cross, like us, we look back to the cross, I get my inheritance by what? The death of that person who died on the cross, and that is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ becomes, is the the testator who dies for the beneficiaries of the will, us. That's not how it normally works, but it, that's how it works with God. But the great thing about it is that Christ is the heir of all things. What, what does Christ own if he's the creator of all things? What does he own? He owns everything. And brethren, I want, I want you to get the sense of the magnitude of this. I don't think we can fully grasp it now that if christ owns everything and we become joint heirs or fellow heirs with christ what do we own as believers everything we own everything look at hebrews chapter one for a minute in verse two this is how he starts it off He says, in the last days, Hebrews 1, 2, in the last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 
Now, right in the beginning, he's letting us know, listen, the one who is the heir of all things is Christ himself. You in and of ourselves, we don't own this stuff. An heir signifies a person who, on the death of another, becomes the possessor of their father's property or their parents' property. We know that an heir is a person who, who is lord of all he inherits, and he takes full possession of all he inherits. So because our inheritance will not pass on from us to someone else, Christ makes us joint heirs. Now that's a unique phrase. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans 8, verse 17. I want you to see this. Romans 8, 17. He makes us joint heirs. And let me remind you that all those who are true children of God are fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ. Romans 8, verse 16 informs us that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Just making sure, listen, the Spirit of God testifies that you are children of God. All right, then look at verse 17. And if children, look what it says, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, brethren, listen to this. He makes us fellow heirs because he lives. He rose from the grave and he lives. And because he lives, we, as his heirs, live also and never die. So if you never die, you can never pass your inheritance on to someone else because you never die, because Christ never dies, so that our eternal inheritance cannot be lost to someone ever. Ever. It will always be yours. There is no insecurity in this will. There is no insecurity in this will. That brings me to my last point. All this has happened, all this has to happen based on the sacrificial death of the one who makes the will. All right? And that's what we see in verse number 18. But before I get there, if you have been following, and I know that you have to work to follow, then you may know that for a Jew, a dead Messiah is no Messiah. But then again, to Gentile, a dead Messiah is no Messiah either. So the author begins to show us, though, that the death of the Messiah, who is the testator and the maker of the will, he has to die. It's necessary for him to die so you and I can be the beneficiary of the will. So without the sacrificial death, no testament or will could be enforced and no sins could be forgiven. So he, rem- he reminds us that when God inaugurated the first covenant, how did he do it? He didn't do it without shedding of blood, but with the shedding of blood. And so the Mosaic Testament 
was itself inaugurated with the death and blood of sacrificial victims. So the Old Covenant was put into force by blood. That means that the New Covenant has to be put into force also by blood. Now look at verse number 18. It says this, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Verse 20, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Verse 21, and in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, of, of the ministry with blood. All right, so what he is saying there, listen, everything that was defiled, everything that could become unholy had to be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrificial victims. Because remember, the blood was the blood do. It washes away the uncleanness. so the person could approach God. In this case, the people were sprinkled, the book of the law was sprinkled, the tabernacle was sprinkled, all the vessels in the tabernacle were, were sprinkled, and there's only one place in Scripture that this type of ceremony is mentioned, actually one place in the Old Testament, and that is in Exodus chapter 34. I don't want you to turn there because it says exactly what it says right here. Half the blood of the of Moses sprinkled on the altar, signifying God's part. And then half the blood was sprinkled on the people, signifying the people's part. Right? God's part was to keep the promise of the covenant. The people's part was to obey the covenant. Right? The problem in the Old Testament is they couldn't obey. Right? So they broke the covenant. See, the difference is, the covenant that is ratified or inaugurated with the blood of Christ can't be broken on either person's side. And the reason why, it's a will. And that's the point that I was making. When a believer is saved by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which makes their past election a present reality, they are then brought into a covenant of obedience sealed by the blood of Christ. And don't forget here... In the Hebrews, a different word is used for covenant. It is a word that does not mean agreement, but it means will. That the conditions of a will are not made on equal terms. They are made entirely by one person, the testator of the will, and the other party cannot alter the terms, but can only accept or refuse the inheritance offered. So that is why our relationship to God is a relationship of that means only one person is responsible. That relationship is offered us solely on the, the initiative and the grace of God. That's why I say again that salvation is all of God. So when we use the word covenant, as I mentioned before, we must always remember that it does not mean that man makes a bargain with God on equal terms. It always means that the whole initiative is Initiative is with God. Terms are His. And that man cannot alter them in the slightest. So you see, see the point being made by the author of Hebrews is that under the Old Covenant, God's 
God offered the people a unique relationship with himself, but the whole relationship was entirely dependent on keeping the law. Here in the the new covenant, because of Jesus Christ being the testator of the will, being the one who dies so the will can be actually sealed and passed out, meaning that it's a work that has completely been done by the Lord himself. And what we do is when the gospel call goes out, we respond to it. So when Jesus shed his blood, he brought redeemed man and God into a covenant of willful obedience, that Christ's blood applied, sprinkled, or shed on us in a spiritual sense, wiping out all our sins, making us completely clean and eternally forgiving us of everything that we have ever done because the gospel of Jesus Christ is proactive in every respect, covers all of time, all people, and by God's spirit, we will obey when it comes to us. It's like Peter who said, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. It's the sense that it's all done by God. He takes care of the covenant. He ratifies the will. He he supplies eternal redemption to us. He cleanses us completely and forgives us of our sin. So it will never come up against us again, ever, ever, ever. So blood is used to cleanse everything unclean and make things and people ceremonially clean because when it comes to remitting of sins, there is no remission apart from bloodshedding. That's why I want you to look at the last passage I'm going to look at, verse 22. Notice, according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, but notice this. And without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness. You may have in your Bible, what? Remission. There's no remission of sin. I think remission remission and forgiveness, some translators decided to translate forgiveness. Some tried to translate it Remission, but I think remission is a better word, but we don't necessarily understand that word today. So if you put those words together, remission actually means this. It means that it is only the holy, precious, all-sufficient blood of the testator, Jesus Christ, that the sin of his children can forever be. Here's the word, the definition of the word, uh, That means, in our passage of Scripture, remission, to wipe away. To wipe away. To remit the penalty that goes with the sin. Psalm says to send it away, send away the sin from the sinner as far as the east is from the west. East, west. In straight lines. Do the east and west ever meet? No, they don't. He sends it away. 
forever. It says in Micah, to send away the sin from the sinner to the bottom of the sea. Try to dive to the depth of the ocean. You can't do it. Humanly impossible to dive to the the depth of the ocean where some of the deepest parts are. It would be crushed to death in no time. So the Lord sends our sin to the deepest part of the ocean, never to be brought up. They are crushed into oblivion. To send away, as Isaiah says, the sin from the sinner, thus blotting out the sins even from the memory of God. I'll not remember your sins anymore. And then Isaiah again says, to send away the sin from the sinner as a cloud is blotted out and vanishes. That's what God does. And here's our, our legacy. The legacy that Christians, that Christ leaves us an eternal inheritance that will never be passed on to another or be taken from us or lost in any way. How truly wealthy all true believers are. I think the admonition should be this. We ought to live according to our wealth. We ought to live according to our, our high calling. All right? And what it would have been called to, we've been called to be the children of God, to live in the kingdom of God forever. And we are wealthy. So if somebody comes up to you someday and says, are you wealthy? You says, man, I am so wealthy. You wouldn't believe how wealthy I am. I am so wealthy, I don't even know what I own. Well, how do you know that? Because I'm joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and he owns it all. See, do you see the privilege and the awesome responsibility that goes with being a believer? See, it's clear. Either you are or you're not. But if you are, you better live like it. Because that's where the Spirit of God is bringing you to live like Christ. And that's what chapter, actually chapter 12 and 13 of Hebrews is going to be more of the practical nature of all this teaching. So I pray this morning that you get a sense of the grandness of the whole scope of salvation that God did for you and I so we can be saved. So we can have it in, 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 in inheritance that no one could touch. No one could fiddle with. It won't rust. The moth won't eat it like it's eating my suit and my wife's sweaters. It won't decay because it's imperishable. See, that's what God does. That's how much he loves us. That's how grand the grace of God is. So let's not lay it aside or think lightly of it or minimize it. God is good to us, and we should give him praise and glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much. I pray, Lord, today that if someone does not know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, today they would sense your summoning. They would sense that they have never heard such a message in which they were presented with the gospel of Christ, the one who dies in the place of sinners to offer them a salvation that is eternal, to offer them forgiveness of sins, to offer them a wiping away of sin 
that could never be brought back up in any kind of court of law to have a relationship with the God who's created the heaven and the earth through Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that the call would be internal. And I pray all those who know you, Lord, would take their Christian life real serious and that they not only would be sober about it, but Lord, you would make us joyful about what you have given us and how wealthy we are. And Lord, thank you for the down payment of the Spirit of God because we know that you're a God who doesn't lie, so you have to, you have to give us the inheritance. We know that our testator has already died, so our inheritance is waiting to be given out. And I pray, Lord, we would persevere in the faith until that day when we will see you face to face and we can drop off faith and see you with our eyes. Lord, we praise you. Let us now lift up our voices to worship you in this last song this morning. In Christ I pray. Amen.